You will recall that uh, last week we began an overview of the Sermon on the Mount found in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And then we focused our attention first on the audience and then on the, the first primary theme of the sermon, which is the kingdom of heaven. And today we're going to examine the second primary theme uh, and conclude our overview with that. Uh, and this has to do uh, with our being different from the world. And for those of you who haven't been here, I was teaching through the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and didn't want to stop. So I thought it'd be good to do an overview of the Sermon on the Mount before we went any further. So that's what we're continuing today. Let's uh, first go to the Lord in prayer. Holy Father, I do uh, come to you recognizing, as always, that uh, I wouldn't believe at all if it weren't for the work of your Holy Spirit. I would never have seen or been able to enter the kingdom aside from the regenerating work of your spirit, aside from being born of the spirit, born from above, by your grace. And for that, I am truly grateful. And I pray on behalf of all of us here who know you this morning, thanking you for the work of your spirit in opening our eyes to see Jesus for who he really is, enabling us to trust in him and repent of our sins and for his work of sanctification in our lives. We thank you also, Lord, that we can come and ask always for the filling of your spirit, and we do so now, that you would fill us with your spirit and fill us with understanding so that we might grasp what it is that you would have to say to us through your word today. We've come here to hear you speak through your word. And we pray that we will hear you. We ask this in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've been helped in my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount by a number of different theologians and teachers over the years and commentaries, but Perhaps one of the best commentaries I've ever come across on the Sermon on the Mount was written by John Stott. It's, in fact, for me, it was a page turner. I could hardly put it down. And that, you don't say that often about a commentary. Uh, some of them are dry as dust, let's admit it. But, but uh, I was really helped, for, uh, helped by him in particular in, in understanding how to approach this particular primary theme. He thinks it's the main theme. I think it's a secondary main theme. I think the main theme is the kingdom of heaven, but this one goes right along with it. And here's something that he's written that I think is is important to think about as we launch into this. These are the words of, of John Stott. Insofar as the church is conformed to the world, he writes, and the two communities appear to the onlooker to be merely two versions of the same thing, The church is contradicting its true identity. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different than anybody else. For the essential theme of the whole Bible from the beginning to end is that God's historical purpose is to call out a people for himself, that this people is a holy people set apart from the world to belong to him and to obey him, and that its vocation 
is to be true to its identity, that is, to be holy or different in all its outlook and behavior. I think he's right about that. Um, And then he refers to the example of the people of Israel after God had delivered them from bondage in Egypt, citing a key passage from the book of Leviticus. And we'll, we'll be ending our study today actually back in the book of Leviticus. Uh, and it'll help us to see that this theme really is the same, that Jesus isn't calling us to some new idea here, that this has been true of God's people throughout the ages. But here I'm reading from Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 4. And there we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them, I am the Lord your God. Now, if that's not a call to be different, I don't know what is, right? And as we saw last week, we too have been called out of the world into a kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus described it in John 18, 36. God has delivered us, we're told by the Apostle Paul, from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And this is the theme, as we saw last week, this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, is the the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it's primarily about. It's about the repentance and righteousness required of those who are in the kingdom. That's what makes us different. And that's what we'll see today. This makes us different from the world. And that brings us to the second primary theme of our Lord's teaching. And I think that this theme may be summed up with Jesus' statement, do not be like them. And this is an insight, as I said, that I really got from John Stott. I, did, I just passed over these words. Um, and although these words are only found in chapter 6, verse 8, um, with respect to prayer, I think we'll see that the concept is found throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this idea that we should not be like them. And the them there, as we'll see, has two main groups in mind. Before moving on, I think uh, another observation from John Stott may be helpful. He's taught me, so I'm going to share what he said with you on this. Um, And uh, I'm doing this in part because uh, I hate ever to give the impression that a line of thinking is my own when I got it from someone else. When I've got an insight from somebody else, I want to tell you where I got it. And, uh, of course, he got it from Scripture, or I wouldn't be sharing it with you. He just helped me see what the Scripture said a little bit better than I had seen it before. He writes this, The Sermon on the Mount, then, is to be seen in this context. It portrays the repentance and the righteousness which belongs to the kingdom, which is obvious to anyone who reads any part of it, right? That is, it directs what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. Well said. And what do they look like, he asks? Different. Jesus emphasized that his true followers, the citizens of God's kingdom, were to be entirely different from others. They were not to take their cue from the people around them, but from him. 
and so to prove to be genuine children of their heavenly Father. To me, he writes, the key text of the Sermon on the Mount is chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, do not be like them. I don't think I'd have picked that as the key text, but it certainly is a key concept, right? Then he writes, it is immediately reminiscent of God's word to Israel in olden days, you shall not do as they. It is the same call to be different. And right through the Sermon on the Mount, this theme is elaborated. That is true. Their character was to be completely distinct from that admired by the world, as we saw in the Beatitudes. They were to shine like lights in the prevailing darkness. Their righteousness was to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, both in ethical behavior and in religious devotion, while their love was to be greater and their ambition nobler than those of their pagan neighbors. There is not a single paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount, he writes, in which the contrast between Christian and non-Christian standards is not drawn. I think he's right about that, and I think we're going to see what he's talking about as we look through some passages here and highlight some where, where these ideas come out. And I think a, a brief examination of the message of the Sermon on the Mount shows that Jesus wants us to have a lifestyle that is different from both the heathen, on the one hand, unbelievers, and the religious hypocrites, on the other hand, those who profess to know God, but their lives say something different. So first, we see that we must not be like the heathen. This is a point which comes across quite clearly several times. Um, Consider, for example, the way in which Jesus used tax collectors as an example of what we should not be like. This is in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 46, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Now, some of you in that second question don't have tax collectors. You have Gentiles. If you have an ESV or an LSB or an NASB, you have the word Gentiles there. That's because in some Greek manuscripts, the first time Jesus asked the questions, he says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? And the second time he asks it, He asked, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Um, And frankly, I don't have a dog in this fight over which reading is better. If If you look throughout the rest of this Sermon on the Mount or the rest of Jesus' teaching, what you'll see is that to him, tax collectors are amount to Gentiles or heathen. In this context, the Gentiles are heathen, pagan people, right? Now, of course, now, some Jews were tax collectors, as was Matthew, the author of this gospel. Um, That's in chapter 10 that that he's called at, I think, verse 3. But even they, the Jewish people who had become tax collectors, were regarded as though they were Gentiles or heathens. Uh, Such as when our Lord Jesus, when speaking of church discipline, said that if an unrepentant sinner 
refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen and a tax collector. That word for heathen is the same word for Gentile. And so the point is that for Jesus, tax collectors and for his fellow Jews, tax collectors and pagans were basically in the same category. If you were a Jew and you became a tax collector, it's like renouncing your faith to them. It's as though you were a heathen. And Jesus is using the term for tax collector in that way here, clearly, right? And so that's why I don't think it much, makes much difference which reading you take there in Matthew 5.47, because Jesus' meaning is the same, right, no matter how you take it. At any rate, we're supposed to be different than the heathen world around us, um, and that means being different from people who claim to know God and act like the heathen world around us, too, right? Uh, we're, or who reject the faith and, and go in heathen directions. They, are, they amount to the same thing. They may only love those who love them. Um, but our Lord Jesus, as we've seen, teaches us that we should love even our enemies. He's calling us to a righteousness that is way beyond the pagan world around us. He also teaches that our praying should be different from the way in which the heathen pray. Uh, this is in Matthew 6, verses 7 and 8. And of course, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount in the coming months, uh, we'll spend a lot of time on each of these things. I'll have to go through them pretty quickly today for obvious reasons. But in Matthew 6, beginning of verse 8, it says, And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, that's ethnicoi or Gentiles do, it can be translated either way. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. For your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So unlike the heathen, uh, we're to pray with faith that God already knows what we need. And truly cares about us as our heavenly father. Their gods may not have any clue what they need until they tell them they're supposed gods, right? But our God is the true God, and he already knows what we need, and he really does care about us, so we don't have to talk to him as though he hasn't got a clue what's going on in our lives, right, unless we tell him. That's partly the idea he's trying to get across here, but they think they have to constantly repeat their prayers because their gods apparently don't have the same knowledge or care for them that the true God has for us. It's no wonder that they were constantly worried about the things of this life as well. Which leads us to our third and final example of how we should be different from the heathen, and that's later on in chapter 6, in verses 31 through 34, where it says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles, or the heathen, seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So we should be different from the heathen, because we seek first the kingdom of God, and, and we don't need to worry like they do. When people look at 
pagans, heathens out there in the world, meaning anybody that isn't a Christian, a true Christian, we shouldn't be surprised that they see a lot of worry. But when they look at us, that's not what they should see. Constant worry and fretting. As though God doesn't care for us or hear us. That's not what they should see. We should not be like them. That's Jesus' point here. Remember, he, he says we're supposed to shine, as we saw in our previous studies, shine as lights in the world. And this is one of the ways we shine. Now, of course, there are many who claim to truly know God and often fall prey to such worry and also behave in ways that are like the heathen, and their lives are characterized in some respects that way, although not in others because they're also pretending to be religious. And this leads us to our next main point. Second, we must not be like the hypocrites. Jesus has a lot to say about them in his ministry and uh, in the Sermon on the Mount because there was a lot of religious hypocrisy in his day. This point is also made uh, quite clearly a number of times. Consider, for example, what our Lord Jesus said about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in verses 20 to 22. Now, you have to keep in mind that the scribes and the Pharisees were the uh, most looked up to religious people by the Jewish people, right? In our day, it would be like a Catholic view of like uh, a cardinals or popes, right, or bishops, they would be viewed as like the most spiritual, most religious people, right? When their day, these people would view, of course, we're not Catholics, so we don't think that, right? But, um, but these days, you know, in their days, rather, people would view the scribes and the Pharisees kind, kind of like that, like on another level of righteousness, on a whole other level of spirituality from the average Joe. If, if they wanted to see somebody was spiritual, and they want an example, they'd, they'd usually point to a scribe or a Pharisee, of course, Jesus' followers wouldn't do that after hearing him, though. <laughs> right? So keep that in mind uh, when we read these verses. Beginning in 520, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That had to be a shocker for the multitudes to be hearing. They're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm nowhere near as righteous as they are. And you've got to tell me I've got to be more righteous? Well, they may have thought that when they first heard this, but they've got to listen to what Jesus goes on to say, especially throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, when these people are, are the example of what not to be. He says, You have heard, i.e., from the scribes and Pharisees, that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Again, we'll unpack that more when we get to those verses in the future. But right now, I want to point out the legalism that Jesus is talking about here. They, in this legalistic way, stopped at the command not to murder. And didn't go any further. Uh, but Jesus says that we have to be different from them by demonstrating a greater righteousness. And by the way, it's not that they didn't know any better. The Old Testament teaches the kinds of things that Jesus is saying we should be like here. There's a lot in the Old Testament about not being angry and how sinful it is. The kind of anger that could lead to murder, right? 
But what, what the scribes and Pharisees were really good at doing is picking certain commandments and saying, well, if I had not done that, then I'm a righteous guy, and ignoring the things, right, that go deeper into the heart. They like to cite certain parts of the law. Now, most of us can get through life without committing murder and pat ourselves on the back, right? How many of us can get through a day without anger? I can't watch the news without anger, right? So they were trying to make everything easier. And then if they could lower the standard in some respects, then they can meet it. And we have to keep in mind, though, when reading passages like this, that there are really two ways in which legalism may be manifested. One way is to add, add things to God's requirements for Christian living. They did this, too. Uh, they were afraid that they might work on the Sabbath, so they made all kinds of laws about what you couldn't do on the Sabbath, really intricate laws, and if you could obey those nitpicky rules, then you'll be sure you haven't actually worked on the Sabbath, right? So work became really broadly defined. And the idea initially was, we'll get a re- we, we're afraid not to keep the law, so here's what we'll do. We'll go further than what the law says and be even stricter. And if we keep those even stricter things, then we'll be sure we haven't actually disobeyed the law. So they did that on some things. But on other things, they said, well, that's kind of too hard to do. So let's just focus on this. And if we've done that, so there's two ways of doing legalism. One is to add things to the word of God that aren't there. And the other thing is to take away, to make it easier to obey. And they did both of these things. They were masters at it, at the, both kinds of legalism. And the, the latter kind, making the hurdle a little high, easier to jump over is what they were doing in this case. They stopped short of fully recognizing the call to righteousness by avoiding the implications of complete obedience. Now, such hypocrites typically also care more about how they appear to men than about what God thinks. They care what God think, thought, right? They'd be following his word more closely instead of trying to figure out ways to get around it. But the next few examples we'll look at show how much they care about what people think. He says here in verse uh, 2 of chapter 6, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not send a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Now, in this context, the hypocrites are people like the scribes and Pharisees, right, Uh, that he's been talking about. Why do they do this? He says that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. Then in verse 5 of Matthew 6, he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue. And the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Then in verse 16 of Matthew 6, he says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And perhaps with the teaching of our Lord Jesus in mind, The Apostle Paul later tells us not only that we shouldn't be like such hypocrites, but that we should actually avoid them. He speaks of such people as having a form of godliness but denying its power. 
And from such people, he says, turn away. That's in 2 Timothy 3.5. Such people are phonies. And we shouldn't want to hang out with them. We don't want to be like them. We certainly don't want them rubbing off on us. A June 22nd, 1992 devotional in Our Daily Bread has an illustration interesting illustration of this point it says have you checked the labels on your grocery items lately yeah they're going way up yeah you may be getting less than you thought it's gotten worse since 1992 hasn't it according to u.s news and world report some manufacturers are selling us the same size packages we are accustomed to but they are putting less of the product in the box for example a box of well-known detergent that once held 61 ounces now contains only 55 Same box, less soap. How something is wrapped doesn't always show us what's on the inside. That's true with people as well. We can wrap ourselves up in the same packaging every day. Nice clothes, big smile, friendly demeanor, yet still be less than what we appear to be. It's like those uh, hypocrites Jesus had in mind. They appeared to be something that they weren't. They appeared to be really super spiritual religious people. But as Paul said, they had a form of, right, of godliness, but they denied its power. There was nothing really there. Certainly not the power of God transforming their hearts. I was reminded of an, the account of an encounter a woman once had with a famous actor, Robert Redford. He was walking one day through a hotel lobby, and a woman saw him and followed him to the elevator Are you the real Robert Redford, she asked him with great excitement. And as the doors of the elevator closed, uh, he replied, only when I'm alone. Is that true of you and me? Or, Or am I the real Keith only when I'm alone? Or I'm the same, or am I the same guy when I'm alone as when I am at church? Do I put on a front around other people, pretend to be something I'm not? I hope not. I don't think I do. I'm sure we all do to some extent. I'm sure there are times, for example, when I try not to let just how bad I feel show or sometimes maybe how good I feel. (laughs) Um, But perhaps you're like me and that kind of hits home at least part of the time. As one pastor asked one time, who are you when no one is looking? That's a very important question. Is there consistency between who we are when we're alone and who we are around other people? Do we find ourselves wanting to appear a certain way around it, particularly appear spiritual and religious, around other people in ways that we aren't really at home with our families or when we're alone. If that's true, we're a little bit too much like the hypocrites Jesus was talking about. And we should repent of that. With such questions in our minds, I... I'd like to conclude our study for this morning with a word from our departed brother, the Apostle Peter. 
who I think kind of summarizes what this sermon is about when he says in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, but as he who's called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now there he's got text from Leviticus in, in mind when he says, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So we're back to Leviticus, as I said. There's at least a couple of times in the book of Leviticus where something like this is said. Leviticus 11, 44 and 45 says this, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defy yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. As we saw in the beginning of this sermon, uh, he also said in Exodus, means you have to be different from these people. Is being like God is being different from them. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, we read, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You should be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This idea of holiness and being different, this runs throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus isn't teaching some new concept here. He's trying to drive home what these people ought to have already known. They ought to have already known that whenever the kingdom of God does come, it's going to be about holiness and about being different from the world. Whatever else it is, it's going to be that. And they couldn't see it. They should have seen that in Jesus, and they didn't. Even though what he was saying wasn't was saying something new when he says the kingdom is here. When I'm here, that was new. But what the nature of the kingdom should have been like, they had a lot of clues about that already. All they had to do is read their Bible. But they were really good at picking and choosing what they read, weren't they? Sadly, too many people are today. We can kind of give the pagans a pass, right? The heathen a bit of a pass. For they don't know as much about these things. But those people out there that have Bibles and read them and say they follow them and yet look exactly like the world when you can walk into a church and what's called a worship service looks like a concert, an ACDC concert or something like that. What on earth is happening? That's hypocrisy. So some people might say, well, you guys, you're just so different from the world. I want to come into a place, unchurched Harry, right, unchurched Mary or whoever, they want to come into a church where they feel comfortable. They don't feel like there's anything different. Well, that might be a nice, comfortable building, but it's not a church if that's their goal. We should be different. If people come in here, they ought to hear something different. They ought to see something different. They ought to be a little bit uncomfortable if they're sinners who need to repent. They ought to be a lot uncomfortable. Our job isn't to make them comfortable by being like them. 
We're supposed to be different. I agree with John Stott. One of the worst things we could ever hear from an unbeliever is, boy, you're just like everybody else. God help us if we hear that. Because if that's the truth, we're nothing like him. So, we've got to be holy. Thank God we have the Holy Spirit within us to make us holy. This is not something we can do on our own. This is something God has to do for us, in us, through us, through the power of his Holy Spirit. And that's why I'm so glad today, after talking about Jesus giving the Holy Spirit, and we're talking about the role of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying us, it was a good theme for our worship today because we cannot be holy as God has called us to be in our own strength. It's impossible. Religious hypocrites, that's what they're trying to do. We want none of that. We want to be the real thing. We want the Holy Spirit to transform us, to make us more like Christ. So let's ask him to do that. Holy Father, we come to you asking again that you would fill us with your spirit. Having heard what your word says and tried to get the import of it for, for ourselves, we, we want to obey. We want to, not to be like the heathen. We don't want to be like hypocrites. We, we, want, to, we want to be genuine, down-to-earth, real, true believers in Jesus and all that we say and do. We want Christ to be magnified in our lives. We want to be holy. We want, when people see us, they, we want them to see a family resemblance to our Heavenly Father. That's what we want. We can't do it. It's impossible. You must do it through us. So we ask, we humbly ask you, fill us anew with your spirit. Forgive us for our failures in these ways and enable us to do better by your grace. Continue your work of sanctification, of making us more holy, making us more like Christ, conforming us to his image. And we will give you all the glory for it that you alone so richly deserve. We seek no glory from men. We want your glory. And so we pray for that, Lord. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, We pray that you do for him or her what you've done for each one of us who does know you. Open their eyes, we pray, that they may see. Grant them repentance and faith. Help them to see that Jesus lived a sinless life and died as a perfect sacrifice for sin so that they could be saved, so that their sins could be forgiven and washed away, that he rose from the dead and conquered death so that we might have everlasting life. And all of it is a free gift. It doesn't have to be earned and cannot be earned. It comes by your grace. If there's anyone who trusts in you for their salvation, Lord, we pray that they would come to someone else in this room and ask for help to grow. We'll give you all the glories we've already said for what you do as a result of this sermon and these prayers. For you alone deserve it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.